0: This week on the show, we have FreeBSD on the Google Pixel Book. We have a report about porting the NetBSD to the AMD X eighty six sixty four. Way back when, ZFS performance, which really starts degrading as you approach the quarter limits, and why that is. Uh, fixing up the ka nine Q Unix. We talk a little tiny bit about Hammer two and FSCK. and the return of Start X for non root users in this week's episode of BSD. Now. Now, episode 320, Codebase MACD. Recorded for the 16th of October 2019. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Teusling.
1: And I'm Alan Ju.
0: And welcome back to another episode this week. Uh, glad to have tuned you in, or you tuned into us. Uh, we have interesting headlines, as always, starting off with FreeBSD and custom firmware on the Google Pixelbook.
1: Yep. Uh, so this is Uh, I say, back in 2015, I jumped on the ThinkPad bandwagon and got an X240 and ran FreeBSD on it. Unlike most people in the uh, ThinkPad crowd, I actually liked the ClickPad and uh, didn't use the track point much. Uh, But this summer, I've decided that it's time for something newer. Uh, I wanted something that was, A, lighter and thinner. And I say, huh, it turns out that it's actually important. I got tired of carrying a thick laptop. Apple was right all along. Well, I will agree that my X270 was quite a bit thinner and lighter than my uh, G530 with the second battery, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which was a, you know, a worst case example almost. Um, I do think the thinness thing can be taken too far, uh, where I end up needing to carry an entire bag full of dongles. That's why I (laughs) like the X270, has real Ethernet port, doesn't require a dongle, uh, etc. It's the right compromise for me. uh, they wanted a three by two display, and they say, "Why is Lenovo making these serious work laptops sixteen by nine in the first place? Sixteen by nine is uh, is awful, especially in your below thirteen inch size. Especially, uh, I would say that is the one thing I like about um, my Mac is the higher resolution. Oh yeah, uh, but I have terrible eyes, so I'm kind of okay with low resolution at the same time. Like I have to turn the the amplification or whatever up on my uh, Mac so much to be able to see anything anyway. Uh, they like having high DPI. Uh, USB C ports, very nice. My ThinkPad X270 does have that, so it's good. I uh, say so without a dedicated GPU, especially without an NVIDIA GPU, um, just has the built in Intel. Uh, whereas, yes, my uh, T530 had the dedicated Intel or and dedicated NVIDIA. Uh, and it definitely hurts battery life having a bigger video card, uh, and they like something assembled with screws and not glue. Um, mm. Yes, ThinkPads are pretty good for being able to be taken apart, especially. Uh, and they wanted to support, uh, have support for running FreeBSD with you know some development required is okay, but I don't want to have to write any of the big drivers or anything. Yeah. Uh, and you know something with Open Source firmware would be great. So they okay. looked at Qualcomm's. Uh, AR64 laptops were out because the embedded GPU uh, needs freed Reno uh, uh, and the UFS storage driver and Qualcomm Wi-Fi and so on. has not been ported to FreeBSD because Qualcomm firmware is very cursed. <laughs> um, they looked at Samsung's RK3399 Chromebook uh, or the new Pinebook Pro. Uh, those would have been awesome. If I were a Linux user, no embedded GPU driver on FreeBSD again, and no one was adding the stuff needed for the flattened device tree or open firmware attachments uh, to the Linux KPI. Uh, It's rather tedious work, so we only support uh, PCIe right now. And can someone please make ARM laptops with a PCIe GPU uh, or something like the MXM slots? Um, So it's still going to be AMD64 for now. Uh, I really like the design of the Microsoft Surface Book, but the iFixit score is 1, which is really bad. Uh, And especially the Marvel Wi-Fi chip, that's not going to have a driver for FreeBSD. They considered a ThinkPad X1 Carbon, uh, maybe from one of the slightly older generations, uh, as the... um, the one from the same year as the X230 is core bootable, so that's fun, but goes back in processor generation, doesn't seem to make sense for a new laptop. Uh, then I discovered the Pixelbook. Other than the one big, huge, large bezel around the screen, I liked everything about it. Thin aluminum design, 3x2 high DPI display, rubber palm rests, uh, why isn't every laptop doing that? The uh, convertibleness, uh, flip the screen around and turn it into something kind of like a big tablet. Uh, The Wacom touchscreen that supports a pen, mostly uh, reasonable hardware like Intel Wi-Fi, and the fabulous Core Boot support, uh, since Chromebook's stock firmware is Core Boot, uh, plus the depth charge stuff. So here it is, my new laptop, a Google Pixelbook. Uh, And so they get in a little bit about what is a Chromebook uh, and some of the different aspects of it. And they say, you mentioned something about FreeBSD in the title of this. So okay, okay, <laughs> let's go. I didn't even want to write an introduction to the Chromebook, but here we are. Anyway, we're waiting for the debug cable to arrive. I've done a lot of work on FreeBSD using the first method, uh, the RW legacy. So CBIOS does not have display output working in OSs that don't specifically support the core boot frame buffer. OpenBSD does, but FreeBSD does not. And I really hate legacy BIOS anyway, so I've been using the UEFI implementation uh, and then putting it in legacy mode. Mm-hmm. Um, the live USB booted fine, and the EFI frame buffer, the NVMe SSD, and the keyboard are all basically working. Uh, I've resized the Chrome OS data partition. Uh and Chrome OS recovered from that fine without touching custom partitions. Found that it's already an EFI system partition, so I just have to add the files to that. Uh, and I went, and they say, uh, I'm leaving out the desktop configuration part here. Uh, that's in a different post if you're interested. They say Wi-Fi was easy. The Pixelbook has Intel 7265, the exact same chipset as my previous ThinkPad. So the Wi-Fi just works with IWM driver. Uh, the Bluetooth, however, is the newer 8265. Uh, oh, if it was the newer 8265, it would have just worked. But these Intel devices present a normal uh, USB Bluetooth adapter, except it only becomes normal if you upload firmware into it. Uh, otherwise, it's kind of just dead hanging there. And so uh manages to power it off to save some battery. Yeah. Uh, they say FreeBSD now has a firmware uploader for that uh, for the newer device, but it doesn't support the older protocol used by the 7265. Um, Luckily, Google kept the keyboard as standard PS2, so that just works. Um, Then you talk about the touchpad, uh, display, backlight, brightness controls, suspend and resume, dynamic CPU frequencies, tablet switch mode, uh, keyboard backlight brightness, um, and then using the debug cable with FreeBSD uh, audio. The only thing that's unsupported seems to be the onboard audio. The usual HDA controller only exposes the DisplayPort audio through the monitor thing. The speakers, mic, and headphone jacks are all connected to various codecs exposed via I2C. I'm not about to write the drivers for these codecs since I'm not really interested in audio on laptop anyway. And then they talk a bit more about firmware. But in conclusion, they have a Pixelbook with FreeBSD, CoreBoot, and EDK2, and it's all good. Okay.
0: Yeah, seems straightforward so far with a little bit of tinkering here and there. Uh, yeah, so people can now uh, start their own Google Pixelbook FreeBSD journal. Uh The next item that we have in our list of uh, great news item here is uh, porting NetBSD to the AMD x86-64, a case study in operating system portability. And that's from actually a Usenix paper. And the abstract goes, NetBSD is known as a very portable operating system, currently running on 44 different architectures twelve different types of CPUs. Uh, this paper takes a look at what has been done to make it portable and how this has decreased the amount of effort needed to port NetBSD to a new architecture. The new AMD64 x86-64 architecture, of which the specifications were published at the end of 2000, uh, with hardware to follow in 2002, is used as an example. So this paper is from uh, BSDCon 2002 if you're wondering whether nice, I see <laughs> that
1: now.
0: how new the AMD64x86 is. Um, okay, so there's a section. So they have multiple sections, of course, and they start talking a bit about what is portability. Supporting multiple platforms was a primary goal of the NetBSD project from the start. And as NetBSD uh, was ported to more and more platforms, the NetBSD kernel code was adapted to become more portable along the way. Uh, generally, uh, code is shared between ports as much as possible. In NetBSD, it should always be considered if the code can be assumed to be useful in other architectures, present or future. Well, that's kind of hard if you think about, you know, the future, what kind of future architectures there might be. But yeah, if you see see another architecture that could use this, um, definitely... Look at that of portability perspectives. So uh, the paper continues. If so, is this machine independent and put in an appropriate place in the source tree? When writing code that is intended to be machine independent and it contains additional preprocessor statements, depending on the architecture, then the code is likely wrong or an extra abstraction layer is needed to get rid of these statements. And uh, there are various types of uh, portability assumptions about the size of any type are not made assumptions made about type sizes on 32-bit platforms were a large problem when 64-bit platforms came around most of the problems of this kind had to be dealt with when netbsd was ported to the DEC alpha in 1994 a variation of this problem has to be dealt with at the uh, with the ultra spark spark 64 port in 1998 uh, eight, which is 64-bit but big endian versus the little endianness of the alpha When interacting with data structures of a fixed size, such as uh, on-disk metadata for file systems or data structures directly interpreted by device hardware, explicitly sized types are used, such as uint32-t and int8-t, etc. So then uh, the paper talks about um, device drivers. BSD originally was written with one target platform, the PDP-11, later a VAX in mind. Later code for other platforms was added and 4.4BSD contained code for four platforms. NetBSD is based on 4.4BSD, but has steadily expanded the number of supported platforms over the years. As more platforms were added, it became obvious that many used the same devices only using different low-level methods to access the device registers and to handle DMA. This led to, for example, five different ports having five separate drivers for a serial chip containing nearly identical code. Obviously, this was not an acceptable situation with ports to new hardware being added every few months. To remedy the situation, the bus underscore DMA and bus underscore space layers were created uh, with the bus space layer taking care of accessing device IO space and the bus DMA layer deals with DMA access. For each NetBSD port to a new architecture, these interfaces must be implemented for each IO bus that the machine uses. Once that is done, all device drivers that attach to such an IO bus should compile and work without any extra effort. And then you have a section on uh, machine dependent parts, about tool chains, boot codes, uh, traps, and interrupts, as well as low level virtual machine and MMU handling. Uh, VM is, uh, yeah, virtual memory, not virtual
1: machine. Yep. And then there's a whole section on the actual 64 bit uh, x86 hardware. To- IA32 architecture, which is how to still run 32 bit stuff on it. Um, the extensions, the registers, how memory management works. And then mm-hmm. some work on the actual port when they actually made NetBSD work on the x86 64 uh, and how some of that works. Yeah, with they the usual. The conclusions. Uh, in the end, they looks like they had to add 300 lines of assembly and 3000 lines of C to libc. Uh, and then the kernel got 3,300 lines of assembly and 17,000 new lines of code mm-hmm. and the linker was 60 lines of assembly and under 200 lines of code
0: okay as a, as a start yeah. so that's interesting how, to, um, how the NetBSD project manages these various uh, architectures and the supports for drivers and all that so that's, that paper gives a good insight into that All right, it's time for the news roundup this week. We have an interesting article from Chris Seiberman about ZFS performance really does degrade as you approach quota limits.
1: Yeah, it was uh, odd to see somebody whose blog I read on a regular basis suddenly have my name in the blog entry. (laughs) Whoops. (laughs) Yes. Um, So Chris goes, uh, every so often, currently monthly, there is a OpenZFS leadership meeting. What this really means is lead developers from various ZFS implementations get together and talk about things. Announcements and meeting notes from these meetings get sent out to various mailing lists, including the ZFS on Linux mailing list. Uh, in the September meeting notes, I read a very interesting, to me, uh, agenda item. Specifically, <laughs> should we make a uh, relaxed quota semantics for improved performance? Problem, as you approach uh, the quota on your dataset, uh, your ZFS performance can go way down. Uh, this is on purpose. It's not a bug so much as a feature, but... Maybe you don't always need that feature. So the proposal is can we maybe make a dataset property, possibly called quota policy, uh, that you can define as, say, strict or loose? uh, And that way, you can have the, if you set it to loose, ZFS would allow a user possibly to violate their quota a little bit, go, you know, maybe a couple megabytes over what their quota is. uh, But as a benefit to it, not have the problem of, Writing when your quote is almost used up being really, really slow. Uh, So they mentioned, or Chris goes on, the video for this September meeting is here and the agenda document is here. Um, He says, This is very interesting to me because of two reasons. First, in the past, we have definitely seen significant problems with our OmniOS machines, both when the entire pool hit a quota limit or when a single file system hit its ref quota limit. It's nice to know that this wasn't just our imagination and that there is a real issue here. Even better, it might someday be improved and perhaps in a way that they could actually uh, use at least some of the time. Uh, Second, any number of people who run very close to and sometimes at the quota limits of both uh, file systems and pools, fundamentally uh, because people aren't willing to buy more space. We have in the past assumed that this relatively harmless would only make uh, people run out of space. If this is a known issue that causes serious performance degradation, well, I don't know if there's anything we can do about it, but at least we're going to have to think about it and maybe push harder at people. Uh, The first step will have to be learning the details of what's going on at the ZFS level that causes the slowdown. Uh, It's it's apparently similar to what happens when the pool is almost full, but I don't know the specifics of that either. With that said, we don't seem to be... uh, to have seen clear adverse effects on our Linux file servers as they're definitely run into quota limits repeatedly. One possible reason for that is having a lot of RAM and SSDs makes the effects uh, mostly go away. Another possible reason is that we haven't been looking closely enough to see that there's, uh, that we're experiencing global slowdowns that correlate to file systems hitting quota limits. Uh, We'd have, uh, we've had issues before with uh, somewhat subtle slowdowns that we didn't understand uh, if I can't discount that, what might have been what was happening there? Um, so, in general, the concept is, especially if you're using compression, it makes this slightly worse. Um, you're getting close to the quota on that file system, so when you write, you write more data. Um, the file system uh, ZFS is like, well, uh, I don't know how much your data is going to compress. Uh, so, in ZFS, there are multiple transactions in flight at any one time, right? There's the open transaction group where your new rights are happening. And then there's the quiescing one where we're getting everything sorted out. And then we're actually flushing it out to disk and so on. Um, so there are always some transactions that aren't finished ahead of you in line. Um, and so ZFS doesn't know how much it should let you put in the currently open transaction group uh, when you're close to the quota, because one of those preceding transaction groups might actually end up using up the last of the free space, meaning you shouldn't be allowed to write anymore. So yep. when yep. you get close to the quotas, ZFS is like, uh, sorry, you can't put any more in right now because what you already have in flight might fill things up. Then as that flushes and gets compressed and maybe takes up a little bit less space than it might have, uh, we write it out and we go, oh, okay, there's some room left. We'll let some more in. But again, we have to be slow because we have to make sure we're not going to violate that quota. Uh, because you know ZFS is like, there's a hard limit at exactly the size of that quota. We don't want to go one byte over. Yeah. Uh, but maybe before. in some use cases, like if you're just setting a quota of, you know, a couple of gigs on every user's home directory, uh, you're okay with them going two megabytes over their quota. Uh so having a quota policy that says, you know, if I'm fine with them going over the quota with what they can manage to write in five seconds. Uh, you know, because you can only write so much data down in five seconds, right? Uh, And so rather than slowing them down constantly to make sure they don't violate that quota a little bit, we'll just like, we'll accept whatever you can do. And then when we actually hit the quota, we'll just say, all right, what's in flight, we'll write out. But everything after that, we'll say, sorry, full, no space. Hmm. Uh, But even, uh, you know, this was brought up to me by actually a different FreeBSD user, uh, Garrett Wallman, uh who's basically having the same problems at uh a different university um doing i think it's machine learning workloads and big data sets and so on um so i don't have a great understanding of all of the intricacies of this yet uh but that's why i brought it up in leadership meeting to get other people's um input on it but also As it turns out, it helps us find other people who are having the problem, or might be, uh, and that makes people aware of it, uh, and also gives us a sense of how many people might be having this problem, and that might increase its priority for how we look at uh, making the changes. So, maybe this will get someone else's attention to work on that sooner than I can, uh, because it turns out there are, you know, a lot of big institutions using ZFS with quotas, and they would like a fix.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. But definitely good to have these uh, discussed in the media- leadership meetings to, uh, to uh, with a wider audience and people from different uh, viewpoints uh, to find the right solution or two solutions maybe uh, that will fit most users.
1: Yes, because uh, the the real problem is um, if you define that your quota policy is loose and they can go over, uh, at some point you're like, how do we draw the limit of how much they can go over? Uh mm. And, you know, I think my naive implementation idea would just be what's already in flight. Uh, and But, you know, technically that could be up to four gigabytes. Now, if your quota is in terabytes, going over by four gigabytes is fine. But if your quota is a gigabyte and you can manage to <laughs> write four gigabytes of data, that's probably not what you intended.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, that needs a bit uh, more consideration from various angles. Uh, but yeah, uh, so these leadership meetings, again, are open to the public uh, and also for, for comments. And the uh, videos are, are quoted afterwards so that people can see what's going on, as uh, Chris did apparently here. Uh, so next up, we have Fixing Up a KA9Q-Unix or Neck Deep in 30-Year-Old Codebases by Adrian Chad on his blog. Uh, it's called Adrian Chad's Ramblings, which I guess it is here. So... <laughs> uh adrian writes i'll preface this by saying yes i'm still neck deep in freebsd's wi-fi stack and 802.11ac support but it turns out it's slow work to fix 15 year old locking related issues that work fine in 11 a b and g cards kind of worked okay on 11n cards and are terrible for these 11ac cards i'll get there anyhow Uh, I've finally been mucking around with AX.25 packet radio. I've been wanting to do this since I was a teenager and found out about its existence. But back in high school and, well, until a few years ago, really, I didn't have my uh, amateur radio license. But now I do, and I've done a bunch of other stuff with a bunch of other radios. The main stumbling blocks, all my devices are either Apple products or on FreeBSD, and none of them have useful AX.25 stacks. The main stacks of choice these days run on Linux, on Windows, or our full hardware TNC. So yes, I was avoiding hacking on AX25 stuff because there wasn't a BSD-compatible AX25 stack. I'm 40 now. Leave me be. But a few weeks ago, I found that someone was still running a packet BBS out of San Francisco. And amazingly, his local node ran on FreeBSD. It turns out Jeremy, uh, his handle there is kk6jjj, Ported both an old copy of KA9Q and Noray BBS to run on FreeBSD. Cool. I grabbed my 2M radio, which is already cable up for digital modes, compiled up his KA9Q port, figured out how to get it to speak to Direwolf, and, okay, well, it worked, kinda. Uh, So his config is listed there. It's a couple of lines, uh, or just four of them. Uh, So after editing that, he writes, and it worked. But it wasn't fast. I mean, sure, it's 1,200 BPS data, but after digging around, I found a very bad stack behavior on both KA9Q and Norray. So off I went to learn about AX25. And holy hell, there are some amusing bugs. I'll still list the big showstoppers first and then what I think needs to happen next. Uh, So he lists, uh, let's look at the stack behavior first. So when doing LA. PB over AX25, there's a bunch of frames with sequence numbers that go out. And then the receiver acts the sequence numbers four ways. RR, roger, roger. Yes, I act everything up to N-1. and R, I I act everything up to N-1, but I'm full. Please stop sending until I send something back to start transmission up again. There's REJ. I received an invalid or missing sequence number. Act everything to N-1 and retransmit the rest, please. And then there's I. This is a data frame, which includes both send and receive sequence numbers. Thus, transmitted data can implicitly act received data. And then he sees a couple of bursts in, in various uh, configurations. And then goes into a bit more about this. It's kind of a long blog post, but it shows um, what kind of things you stumble into if you really get into deep into the code base and find out certain things from uh networking from
1: the 80s and 90s oh yeah
0: yeah so i guess
1: Uh, people should read the whole thing i think a openbsd based packet radio thing happening lately as well oh yeah we mentioned something about Uh, it ham bsd we mentioned that just the other day Mm -hmm. yeah they did something there
0: uh yeah so um he closes uh with um if you're interested software repositories are located below uh, I encourage people to contribute to the KE6JJJ work. I'm just uh, forking off of it. GitHub username Eric Karn. and I'll be pushing improvements there. Oh, and these compile on FreeBSD. KA9Q and Direwolf both compile and run on macOS 10, but Nori BBS uh, doesn't yet do so. Yet, this does mean you can now do packet radio on FreeBSD and macOS 10. And there are the list of uh, repositories on GitHub. Cool. So, for the people, more into this kind of package <laughs> sending, on this kind of AX2.5 stuff. Definitely take a look.
1: Uh, so next up we have from the Dragonfly BSD Digest. Uh, the new changes to Hammer 2 and its FSCK tool are now out for review. Hammer 2 is copy-on-write, meaning changes are made to copies of existing data. This means operations are generally atomic and can survive a power outage, etc., uh, and there's more links if you want to read up on that. However, there is now an fsck command, useful if you want to report uh, data validity rather than uh, having to do any manual repair process. Yes, we talked a little bit about it uh, the other week, and so I think uh, still yes, the fsck utility only reports problems; it cannot fix them.
0: Yeah, it's not. Uh, it's just a, a checker, not a repair tool. Uh, But definitely good to have in case you encounter some weird file system issues on Hammer 2. You can at least run an FSCK on that. Uh, Then we have the return of StartX for non-root users. This is also related to an earlier BSD Now episode, but there is progress here as well to report. So over at the OpenBSD Journal, they write that Mark Katanis has recently committed changes which restore a certain amount of StartX or X-init behavior or functionality for non-root users. Uh, the commit message explains it as follows: so uh, add ttyc4 to lots of devices to change when logging in on ttyc0 and in some cases also the serial console, such that x can use it as its VT when running uh, without root privileges. So that's the virtual terminal. And the other commit here for the Xenocara module is add a mode setting driver as a fallback when appropriate, such that we can use it when running without root privileges. Uh, which prevents us from scanning the PCI bus. This makes StartX or XInit work again on modern systems with Intel DRM, Radeon DRM, and AMD GPU. In some cases, this will result in using a different driver uh, than with Xeno DM, which may expose issues, like, for example, when we prefer the Intel XORG driver, or loss of acceleration, for example, older cards supported by Radeon DRM. Okay, good to have that so that... Not all X runs under root privileges or as a root user. Very nice. So, time for the beastie bits this week. We have an ASCII table and history. Or, why does Control i insert a tab in my terminal? Over at bestasciitable.com.
1: So, to understand this, uh, you need to understand ASCII. And to understand ASCII, you need to know a little bit about its history and the world it was developed in. So you can just read through the story or you can just jump to the table. Um, teleprinters. Teleprinters evolved from the telegraph. Connect a printer and keyboard to a telegraph and you've got a teleprinter. Early versions were called printing telegraphs. Most uh, teleprinters communicate using the ITA2 protocol. Uh, for the most part, this uh, would just encode the alphabet, but there were a few uh, control codes like WRU, who are you, Uh would cause the receiving teleprinter to send back its identification, or BEL, would ring a bell, and it had a similar CR for carriage return and LF for line feed. This is all early 20th century stuff. There's no electronic computers. It's all mechanical, working with punched tape. The ITA2 and codes like it were uh, mechanically efficient. Common letters such as E and T required only a single hole to be punched. Um... Those five-bit codes would only encode 32 characters, which is not even enough for the f- uh, for just English. Uh, the solution was to add the figs and letters codes, which would switch between figures and letters mode. Uh, figures RW would produce 42. Uh, this would uh, this worked, but typoing a figures or letters or losing one in line noise would result in all kinds of gibberish. Uh, They have a great image here. Um, A printing telegraph produced in the year 1907 is basically uh, alphabetically supported or alphabetically sorted piano keys uh, is a great example of how oftentimes what the first versions of technologies are, take some existing device and modify it slightly. So in their example here, they basically put the alphabet on some piano keys and rigged it up so when you press them it completes the circuit and makes the right noise or whatever So, uh, a uh, letters is the very first key and then they have A on the sharp key and then B and then C on a sharp and D on the regular key and back and forth uh, and they have a special command for repeat as well and they have some, uh, in addition to your regular numbers they also have uh, one eighth one quarter, three eighths half uh, hmm. Five eighths, three quarters, and seven eighths. Uh, a couple other common uh, numbers you need like that. Oh, uh. they seem to have two copies of one quarter and one half for some reason. No idea. Anyway, in the 1950s, teleprinters started to get connected to computers rather than other teleprinters. So the ITA2 protocol was designed for mechanical machines and was awkward to use. So ASCII was designed specifically for computers. Uh, to use and published in 1962. Teleprinters used with computers were called terminals, as in the end of the connection, like a train terminal. Uh, Teleprinters were called TTYs, or teletypewriters. And you can still find names like DevTTY uh, in your modern system. People really program computers using teleprinters. Here's a video of a teleprinter in action, if you want to watch it. Uh, And here's... uh, a somewhat cheesy but interesting and cute video which explains how they were used to program a PDP-11. They said terminal would connect to a computer with a serial port, RS-232, which simply transferred bytes back and forth. A terminal is more akin to a monitor with a keyboard rather than a computer in its own right. A modern monitor connected with HDMI is told, draw this pixel in this color. In 1960s, the computer merely said, here's a bunch of characters for you to print. If you're wondering what a shell is, a shell is a program to interact with your computer. It provides a command line, runs programs, and displays results. The terminal just displays characters. It's like the difference between your TV and a DVD player. Okay. Uh, Talk more and more about that. Let's say modern systems and ASCII properties. all of this matters because modern uh, terminals operate on the same principles as those in the 1960s. If you're opening up three X terms or I term two windows, then you're emulating three terminals connected to a mainframe. If you look at the ASCII table below, then there are some interesting properties in its first column. You can see how the left two bits are always set to zero, and the other five bits, which count up to 31, making 32 different possible combinations, the second column repeats this pattern but with the fifth bit set to one. Uh, Remember, read binary numbers from right to left. Um, Hmm. The interesting part here is that the letters A to Z and some punctuation map directly to the control characters in the first column. All that's uh, needed is removing one bit, and it's exactly what the control key did. The control key clears the seventh bit. Uh, Lowercase and uppercase letters align in the third and fourth column, and this is so that the shift key could just clear the sixth bit so pressing control i uh lowercase uh would mean sending a uh closing uh race which is not very useful uh so some terminals interpret this as control plus uppercase i which sends the um ht del uh command at the table for that yeah sends the ht uh horizontal tab um Delete is last, uh, so all bits are set to one. This is how you delete a character on punch tapes. Punch all the holes. (laughs) Uh, So this is kind of neat and well-designed, but for us it means there's no way to see if the user pressed only control or shift because uh, from a terminal's perspective, all they do is modify a bit on the character they're actually pressing with it. So there's no way to distinguish between the tab key and someone pressing control plus I. It's not just the same as tab. Control plus I is sending literally the same binary uh, as tab. There's no way to distinguish between control A and control shift A either, because the bit that the control clears, or the shift clears, is already cleared. Sending control with a character from the second column is useless. Control uh, clears the seventh bit, but this is already zero, so control... And the number sign is the same as just sending the number sign. The world uh, has not completely stood still, and there are some improvements since the 1960s. But terminals are still fundamentally ASCII-based text interfaces, and programs running inside a terminal, like a shell or Vim or whatever, still have very limited facilities for modern key events. Non-terminal programs don't have these problems as they're not restricted to this 1960s text interface. I see. Hmm, that's certainly interesting that I didn't know about. I've never looked at an ASCII table in exactly that way before.
0: (laughs) Yeah, or the control I wasn't that familiar to me that it would.
1: Wait, or in particular, that control T is actually sending DC4, whatever that means. (laughs) 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 Our favorite key combinations, next to copy and paste, ah, well, and control R and control S are DC2 and DC3, and I don't think we use them for anything. Should we start? <laughs> ah. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, we
0: will find use for that. Um, <laughs> next up is uh, that Source Hut makes BSD software better uh, over at sourcehut.org. Uh, they write every day, Source Hut runs continuous integration for FreeBSD and OpenBSD for dozens of projects. And believe it or not, some of them don't even use Source Hut for distribution. Improving the BSD software ecosystem is important to us, and as such, our platform is designed to embrace the environment around it rather than building a new walled garden. This makes it easy for existing software projects to plug into our CI infrastructure and make BSD projects take advantage of this to improve their software. Most of the software is foundational stuff, and the improvements trickle down to the entire BSD ecosystems. Uh, so let's highlight a few of these projects that take advantage of our BSD offerings. Uh, the first thing they list is end user software, uh, NeoBim, yep. and what? The
1: first one Oh is wait, programming language.
0: Oh, sorry, <laughs> scroll, scroll too far. Sorry, a uh, programming language, of course, uh, Janet, Nim, and Zig. Several programming languages use SourceHut to run BSD testing. The Janet language uses SourceHut to test both FreeBSD and OpenBSD, and fast. Each build takes only about a minute. The newest language to join us is Nim, which now uses build. Uh, .sr.ht to make sure every GitHub pull request works correctly on FreeBSD and OpenBSD. The Zig project, long lost friends of SourceHut, have also been using builds.sr.ht to test their FreeBSD support, and they host a mailing list uh, with us too. The stability of programming languages is especially important, as bugs in a compiler or implementation will affect all software compiled with it. Thanks for using SourceHut to keep your BSD support in good shape, guys. Now it comes
1: to the yeah. This is like a very useful project, especially as there's more and more, uh, you know, third-party user applications that go in ports. Where it'd be really good to have their head branch constantly be built against OpenBSD and FreeBSD and so on, so that, again, as we've talked about many times, if you report the bugs as soon as they commit it, or even when they open the pull request and they haven't actually merged the change yet. Uh, you know, when it's code they're actively working on, you're more likely to get it fixed than um, you know, six months later after they've done a release and we ported it, we report the problem to like, oh, I don't remember that code anymore. And, you know, I'm busy working on this other stuff I've already done. Cool. Uh or, you know, I'm I'm working on something else right now and I won't be able to get back to that old code you're talking about for a while. Can't be bothered, yeah.
0: Yeah, good. So the end-user software they list is NeoVim and Mutt. Uh, End-user software gets in on the fun too, which puts more stable BSD software closer to your fingertips. The NeoVim project, a fast-moving and modern fork of the venerable Vim text editor, uses build.sr.ht for open BSD testing and working on using it to help fix bugs in their FreeBSD ports. They have a link there. The similarly venerable Mutt email client has also been experimenting with SourceHut recently. They're using... uh, builds.sr.ht to make sure MUD compiles on FreeBSD, Alpine Linux, and Debian, and they're trying out lists.sr.ht mailing lists too. Then they have uh, display servers, WLroots, and Sway. One of my own projects, WLroots, uh, was one of the first adopters of SourceHut, to no surprise. We were also early adopters of FreeBSD support, and now we use it to test that dozens of Wayland compositors work well on the platform. Several of these tests themselves further down the stack on FreeBSD as well, uh, such as my own Sway project and the CAGE project and more projects still are using SourceHut to test other operating systems as well. Small projects too. Uh, Lots of smaller projects have been taking advantage of SourceHut's BSD tools too to make sure they're set up right on our Berkeley friends from the start. Simon Sur's MRSH shell tests on FreeBSD Arch Linux and Alpine Linux Michael Forney's Samurai Project uses source hot builds to test four operating systems, including free and open BSD. Hey, great. And yours, question mark? Want to try it yourself? Just set your own build manifest image to freebsd slash latest or openbsd slash latest and drop it into the submit page to give it a test drive. No need to push any half-baked test commits until it's done. Check out the compatibility page for details on builds.sr.ht support for BSDs. And other operating systems and check out our dispatch.sh.ht to add BSDCI to your GitHub projects. Hey, are you a NetBSD expert? We need some help to finish up NetBSD support on builds.sh.sr.ht. Get in touch. Yeah, definitely. Uh, NetBSD is missing currently on that, so that should be changed. And thanks for the source hot folks, so for that CI infrastructure. Very, very cool. Uh, then we have uh, in our listing of Beastie bits ChaosNet for Unix. So what is this? Uh, ChaosNet was an early or pre-Ethernet computer network developed at MIT. It was an early common bus packet network, uh, for all the, i.e. all the machines shared a single wire and sent packets back and forth. ChaosNet was used to connect many machines at MIT, most notably the PDP-10s running ITS and the LISP machines. This, can, this code simulates a ChaosNet network on a single machine. There is a central server which clients connect to using Unix sockets. The server relay packets, relays packets back and forth between the clients. And there's a CADR simulator or UZIM, uh, which can be a client and uses this code to talk to the file server. File is the file serving protocol used on ChaosNet. And uh, there's a quick start section, building instructions, and how to run it. And a bit of a ChaosNet addressing primer okay interesting from the uh, days before there was uh, tcpip networking or when the network was just in its infancy Uh, next then we have a vim inspired editor with a linguistic twist this is over at cosine.blue uh a Vim Concert's commentary on Kacoon, the selection-oriented editor focused on interactivity and incremental results. Or Mo's experiment for a better code editor. So, what is Kacoon? Oh, it's called KQN. Okay, now that they have uh, <laughs> you know, the phonetic alphabet here. Is it KQN? Yeah, okay. Uh, describes itself as a code editor heavily inspired by Vim and like the venerable VI and successor, its internal model interprets the user's keystrokes using utterances of a sort of text editing language but with a certain linguistic twist. More on that later. Available for reasons that will later become clear only on Unix-like systems. It was written in C++ and has a clean code base and runs like the wind in a terminal. Uh, Maxime Costi, Cost, I guess, Costi uh, was the author. Um, yeah, and they talk a bit about um, what the reasons are but creating that editor, and do we really need another Wim clone? Uh, And they say that it is neither a fork nor a clone. Uh, It's an effort to provide incremental results and interactivity uh, to the selection-oriented and code editor, takes a bold step away from some of the Wim interactions, familiar to many of them, uh, or to many of us, while remaining competitive uh, for keystroke, for keystroke, millisecond, for precious millisecond. Uh, so the author cites the Unix philosophy as one of K- KQN's virtues. And certainly it would agree that it uh, trumps Vim in adherence thereto uh, and that it's not easy to say it, it lacks enough features. And there's a twist at the end. Uh, whereas VI's keystroke language follows verb object order, KQN inverts that by following object verb order. So in real terms, that means you make a selection object before deciding what to do the verb with it. The object might be a character, a word, sequence, a paragraph, parenthetical, regular expression, you name it. The verb might be delete, yank, or copy, uh, change, indent, or even transformative operations like lint, format, and uppercase. In KQ, it is with this reverse grammar, this postfix notation, that you interactively sweep up a group of groups of characters before acting on them. Uh, That way, if your object Uh, isn't quite right, you can immediately correct it without having to undo and redo your verb. Okay, and there's more uh, description there. It's definitely a nice way of using that and uh, you should check it out if you're interested in a different uh, language or language twist in a Vim uh, sort of editor. Our next item is uh, Beehive ARM64, CPU and memory virtualization on ARM V8. Dash A, this is from uh The BSD can talk from, uh, oh, our Romanian um, um, uh, postdocs, I guess, Alexandru uh, Elise. Yep,
1: and it says Beehive is FreeBSD's hypervisor, and we've been working on porting it to the ARMv8 architecture. Uh, the port, which we called ARM or Beehive ARM64. Uh, we will present the current status of the project, the architecture of the hypervisor, as well as how we have used the hardware features, which are designed uh, as part of the architecture for virtualization. Uh, to provide the guests with an abstractive view of the processor, we have used a third CPU exec- uh, execution mode uh, called Exception Level 2. To restrict the guest to a memory region of our choice, we have used an extra address uh, translation step called Stage 2 Translation. This virtualization allows a host computer to run multiple virtual machines, and the ARMv8 family of processors provides various hardware features which make virtualization efficient by removing or reducing some of the overhead usually associated with running virtual machines. Beehive is FreeBSD's hypervisor and was originally created to implement these types of virtualization extensions for the x86 platform. We've been working on porting Beehive to the ARMv8 architecture. Since a hypervisor needs to have control over the memory locations, that a guest virtual machine is able to access. Historically, this has been done by emulating the page tables in software, which can incur a significant hardware uh, and performance penalty. To reduce this overhead, Arm has implemented a second stage of address translation called stage 2 translation as part of this uh, virtualization extensions. We use this feature to isolate a region of memory which will be made available to the virtual machine, and that way the virtual machine doesn't somehow access the host memory. Next, we have uh, a video from DEFCON25 called Are All the BSDs Created Equally? A Survey of BSD Kernel Vulnerabilities.
0: Ah, yes. Yeah, this is interesting. Mm -hmm. And now it's time for... The feedback and questions section, as always, um, in this segment, we ask you to send us feedback and questions uh, about the show, anything in the BSD world going on, or something that's on your mind. Um, send us to feedback at bsdnow.tv, so we'll have future questions in this section. Uh, Tim is the first one that we start with here uh, about GSOC project ideas for PF rules syntax translation. Tim writes, hi guys, I was listening to episode 315 and Tom's question gave me an idea. I realized that porting the current version of PF to FreeBSD would be time-consuming, possibly expensive, and even if successful, a moving target as the version of PF used in OpenBSD is actively developed. It occurred to me, however, that translation, the P, well, translating the PF rules from the OpenBSD syntax to the FreeBSD syntax would be a much smaller project for those features that they have in common possibly even small enough for Google's summer of code. It would basically be a parsable engine with dictionaries for the operating systems. It would later be expanded to translate rule sets between different firewalls, like IPFW, for example. Another possible project would be to create docs for PF rules for various scenarios, possibly using the book of PF scenario as a starting point. Uh, just
1: my uh, two cents. So, yes, changing the Lexing rules Uh in FreeBSD PF, to be able to understand the newer syntax using OpenBSD's PF uh, and basically translate it to the equivalent rule in the older syntax is probably relatively doable. Although it requires understanding a lot about PF and a lot about the the Lexing rules. Um, so not something I'd volunteer to do. But mm. yes, if somebody uh, has looked at that and thinks it's tractable, then yeah, it'd be great to have someone do that. Yep. So
0: thanks for that question. Uh, maybe someone someone is picking that up. It doesn't have to be necessarily be in the Google Summer of Code. It could also be a side project uh, outside of Google Summer of Code. Uh, but for a beginner, it's definitely a nice project to uh, grind your tears a little bit into it or <laughs> the teeth. Um, Brad is next uh, with a question about Steam on FreeBSD. Brad writes, Hi, Alan, Benedict, and JT. Uh, It was great catching up with you at VBSDCon. Ah, yes, that Brad. Okay, yeah. You were requesting questions, and I have a few, which I will try to add to the queue since you are recording double episodes for your VBSDCon, at least time where we got the message. Yep, thank you, Brad. All right. Um, Brad uh, writes, I have a question, and oddly enough, it has nothing... To do with ZFS. Ah, come on. (laughs) That's fine. What is the current status or best practice for installing Steam on FreeBSD? Seems there are a number of threads and web posts over time. Some say it works. Some say it makes a mess of FreeBSD's file system. The posts are all over the place. Ah, so he has been playing Cold Waters on FreeBSD and Wine. uh, Bought it off on good old games. However, uh, he was considering buying American Truck Simulator, Gold on Wine uh, AppDB. But you need a Steam key to play it. Uh, do any of you have any experience getting Wine to work on the FreeBSD?
1: Um, I don't have any experience, but I know some other people have.
0: Yeah, it seems like it's a very selective uh, type of uh, applications that work, or games in particular. So I-, I had no personal experience. Like, I would have time to play games now. Um, but uh, maybe some of our listeners has, uh kind of a how-to or some more experience with those particular games or applications, if you want to call it that, um, then yeah, let us know and we'll refer you because yeah, it might be interested in, uh, might be interesting to more than just uh, Brad here. Um, yeah, no idea. Um, hopefully it works better than it was before, uh, when people were just saying it didn't work, but I have no idea or no, um, uh, how to or tutorial under my belt that I can provide. Uh, but thanks uh, for coming out to VBSD Conrad. Uh, and thanks for the journal article that you've written or the little trip report for that. This is coming up in the future uh, FreeBSD Journal issue. This will come out in the next month. I'm fairly sure it will. Uh, no. Oh, yeah. No. Yeah, it does. Uh, November, December issue. And um, so you can read. Uh, what his experiences were at BBSDCon. Okay, uh, and uh, last in this week is Ruslan uh, with a question about the FreeBSD quarterly status reports, the second quarter of 2019 in particular. Uh, Ruslan writes, uh, Hello, Alan and Benedict. Thanks for your great show. Thank you. I have a question for you. Uh, I recently read the FreeBSD quarterly status report, second quarter, and didn't understand a part of the bio underscore delete support for the swap pager section. The latter says that, quote, as of uh, this revision, in current, swap on can send bio underscore delete to all blocks on the specified device immediately prior to configuring it as a swap device. So, uh, unquote, uh, I had installed my FreeBSD13 current AMD64 before that revision um, using a snapshot and now runs uh, revision 351728 uh when it, he was installing uh the system I create a volume a zvol, for swap using service create uh capital v a size uh dash o org.freebsd, previous colon swap equals on uh no check summing and uh this, the name is swap okay um Oh, yeah, root is a pool on the NVMe device uh, that he has. Okay, then rebooted to the just-installed FreeBSD and got working, I believe, swap. If you look at swapctl-l, you see this dev zvol. Yeah, well, there it is. Uh, yeah, I neither changed uh, rc.d's ZFS scripts uh, nor used swap on to enable the swapping on that zvol. And the question is, does my swap device support receive by underscore delete ATA trim command after all, I didn't issue swap on dash capital E. I just specified the user-defined option uh, org.3bsd colon swap for the zvol.
1: I don't know off the top of my head. Um, I'm guessing you. Yeah, you did it via um, fs tab, probably. Yeah. So, uh, other yeah. so in general, zvols support trim, and that will cause them to free space. And then separately, zfs knows uh, from looking at each device and querying it, whether it supports um, prim or not. If that makes sense. Could be, yeah.
0: Yeah, because typically how you add a, uh, a swap z-wall to your system is doing the zfs-create uh, and then either using swap on or listing that in your fs-tab and then running that again uh, using uh, uh, what's it called, mount-a if you want to run that. yeah, But Maybe that already activates the swap on dash e by just listing that as the uh, user-defined property. That needs to be uh, looked up in the code, I guess.
1: Um, So in general, what this does is trim the whole device when you first enable it for swap. Probably not something you necessarily want to do every time you boot. Uh, So it's really designed to be a one-time operation. This is more about deleting all the blocks on the swap device when you first configure it for swap. It's not something you'd want to do at every boot when you mount the swap partition. Mm. Maybe that makes more sense now.
0: Yeah, it must be that way. Yeah, this would make more sense. Yeah. Uh, hmm. Who wrote that code? I'm not sure. Was it one of our? Was it a a foundation project? No, that was could be. I have no idea. I need to look at the the quarterly status report details. Uh, But if someone knows, then uh, get in touch. We'll mention it in a future show. So yeah, thanks, uh, Ruslan, for that question. And this uh, is the end of our episode for this week. Uh, Thank you for listening, as always. And uh, if you have anything for us, again, send this to feedback at bstnow.tv and we'll have future episodes to fill. Thank you and see you next time.